This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Two huge stories, Maidstone's FA Cup triumph and Jurgen Klopp's announcement that he's stepping down at the end of the season. And with apologies to George Alakobi, we'll start with Klopp. It seems to have surprised everyone, but gives us a chance to celebrate his achievements, his ability to improve players and build and rebuild his squad. What will he do after heavy metal football, perhaps wind down with the acid jazz of international management? And what next for the red? Jabby Alonso just seems to tick every single box. Then onto the cup, 98 places between Maidstone and Ipswich, and it might have been smash and grab, but what a glorious victory two brilliant counter-attacking goals and a great goalkeeping performance everything you need to cause an upset we'll do the other games a scare for Man U the crowd trouble at the Hawthorns and Man City scoring at Spurs for the first time in years and is the pod in danger of falling into the pocket of big stake all that plus your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly on the panel today Barry Glendening welcome hi Max hello John Bruin hello and hello Jonathan Faduba Good morning, Max. Good morning. And joining us uh, uh, for part one, it's been too long, our Merseyside correspondent, Andy Hunter. Hey, Andy. Hey, you okay? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, Andrew says, I remember where I was when I heard Shankly was going, and I'll always remember hearing that Klopp was going. He's been perfect for Liverpool, bringing not only success, but also so much joy. Thank you, Jürgen. Let's hope we get Alonso, and he's as good as he seems to be. So Jürgen Klopp decided to leave Liverpool at the end of the season. He's won seven major trophies so far. The Champions League, of course, and their first league title for 30 years. Uh, He released a video. I don't know about you, Andy. I mean, I presume it's been quite a busy weekend for you, but I'm really surprised by anything. But I was really, I wouldn't say shock is maybe going too far, but it really took me aback, this video. Oh, I was shocked, completely shocked. Um, I had no inkling it was coming. Uh, which I probably shouldn't be saying as the mid-side football <laughs> correspondent. <laughs> but uh, no, he, I mean, he did his press conference on Thursday for the Norwich game, which was unusual. We were asking questions about that and giving some story about it being for, he had a very busy commercial day on the Friday, so couldn't do it. And then the first inkling that anything was out of the ordinary was getting a, a an email moments before Liverpool released the video saying there was going to be a press conference at the training centre that afternoon no indication of what it involved I, I genuinely thought it could have been a you know a Dunkin Donuts deal renewal and I was questioning whether I had to go there and then next thing <laughs> the video dropped and all hell broke loose and genuinely genuinely gobsmacked when uh, I heard him say that he was leaving at the end of the season I know he'd, he'd been quite uh, deflated by last season and we spoke about it to him or with him at the beginning of this season about him being re-energised by the the transfers and about how well Liverpool were playing. So that side of things, that doubt about whether he still had the energy that he needs to do the job had kind of been, we thought, put to bed. And Andy, what's the last 48 hours been like then? From being at Anfield yesterday and from obviously the, the reactions on Friday, one of, well, initial devastation amongst Liverpool fans and then and disbelief still. I think, you know, I know quite a few people who sit near the press box at Anfield in the main stand yesterday who just uh, still couldn't come to terms with it and shaking their heads. And, and they were very inevitably uh, very supportive of Klopp getting behind them in the first minute and and the sustained chorus of Jürgen as a red after the final whistle. But generally, I think people are still in just disbelief and 
you know, not so much at the moment that can come worrying what comes next. I'm sure that is a that is a feeling, but the the, the sense of loss that uh, will come when when he does step away because he's he's much more than a successful manager for Liverpool. Can you give a sense of what what he means to the fans and and sort of what he's done to half of the city? I think talking about energy and talking about uh, him running out of energy, he has re-energised the fan base, uh, brought it all together, given a new generation uh, moments and nights and trips that they will never forget. Uh, even if, you, you know, you could say that, you know, could have won two more Champions Leagues or pipped at the, for the title twice. I think it's more the the joy. I think Jonathan Liu put it brilliantly in his piece on Friday. It's the feel the feel that he's brought to Liverpool, that can't be replaced. That's the sadness, I think, for Liverpool fans now is you could get another successful manager who could maybe keep pushing Liverpool to challenge City's dominance, but there isn't another Klopp. And it's that joy, it's that feeling, that communal experience that that is going. And it, it's a very, it will be a very sad day when it, when it does, get, does end. But Barry, what did you make of his reasoning? I mean, sort of that sense of perspective seems quite healthy to me. It sort of feels like within football, it's like no one could ever just go, do you know what? I'm actually just a bit knackered. So I'll just, I'll just have a breather. I'll just step away. Yeah, I mean, when I heard the news, I was stunned like everyone else. And my immediate thought was, oh, is, is he okay? Like, you know, I thought, oh, maybe he's ill or something. Or he's had a health scare. You know, someone in his family has had a health scare. But... I suppose when you think about his reasoning, uh, assuming the reasons he's given are genuine and have no reason to to think they aren't, walking away at the the top of your game is difficult. But if you can afford to do it and you know that there'll always be a job for you somewhere else when you decide you want to come back, if you want to come back, uh, then it's grand. Why, Why not do it? And... He, you know, for a while he has looked like he's had the weight of the world on his shoulders. It's a very stressful job. And um, he's been there quite a long time. So I did think it was interesting, actually. Andy asked him during his press conference, was there any chance he might do a, a Fergie on it and change his mind? You know, and asked him, is there anything that could happen that would make you change your mind? And it was a good question. And... It was quite funny that Klopp seemed genuinely not to know that Fergie had, you know, announced his departure, then changed his mind and stayed at Manchester United for another decade or more. So, uh, and and he said, no, uh, nothing could happen. If, if we don't win any trophies, I won't change my mind. If we win all four trophies, I won't change my mind. And I suppose the one thing I did find quite curious was his definitive announcement that he will never manage in England again. And I thought that was a bit strange. Uh, I, I don't know why he would say that. Is, is it just out of loyalty to Liverpool or to help Eric Ten Hag have a good night's sleep? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I'd like to know, Andy, he's obviously a good man. He's a nice man. He's a brilliant manager, but he can occasionally be a bit spiky and unpleasant in interviews. And how has your relationship with, been with him over the years? And how, how do you guys who deal with him, you know, week after week, 
how, how do you all get on with them? I think I'd say quite well. I mean, to be honest, we're in a, a fortunate position or a privileged position where we've, you know, we we cover Liverpool all the time. We've been there for some of us older ones have been there for the duration. And so I think with that comes a bit more of a, a better relationship. Uh, you know, a lot of his spikier press conferences, I would say, have come, I mean, and obviously this is not an exact science, but a lot of them have come at away matches when he's getting questioned by someone who perhaps he doesn't really know. And he's, if they don't win a game, Liverpool, he's not great to deal with. Even if they get a fortunate draw, he's not great to deal with. If they win, fine. But like most managers are like that, I suppose. I think he's, uh, yeah, he, he, you know, he he likes to uh, control the room as well. That's the that's the other thing. Well, I think you know, as I say, from from dealing with him for nine years, and and we don't just you know we see him separately to the the broadcast interview that you see. You know, he'll go off to a side room and have a few minutes with the written press, and that can be a bit more relaxed anyway. So. If he wants, if he has an issue with something that's in the papers or or that's out there, he can, you know, take it to task, and you can have it out with him without it being broadcast and then becoming a social media sensation. He can actually be himself and just get it out there. And I think he likes that part of things. Is that knowing that he could kick off at someone and it's not going to, you know, be dissected for, you know, by twenty million people. So, yeah, I think we have quite a, a decent relationship with him uh, but you know it, the demands on his time as well I mean uh, I remember seeing um, his press list before a Champions League final uh, no on a Champions League press final de- a media day where they're doing the rounds and he had something like 20 odd interviews to do in one afternoon and just like that would drive me nuts it's like Margot Robbie at a film junket, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, you're getting asked, is it? Oh. But you'd be getting asked the same question as well. Yeah. And if you're doing that 20th interview and your patience has well gone by then, you've still got to look like it's the first time you've heard it. Yeah. And you're enthusiastic because whoever is seeing that interview, whatever country that is in, are going to be, you know, forming their judgment off the back of it. So, uh, you know, I remember seeing that list and I couldn't, genuinely couldn't believe how many interviews he had to do. And, I know it's not Champions League final press day every every week, but you know that it gives a sense of the demands that's on him and increasing all the time as well. Jonathan, what's the Barcelona's the greatest moment, right? Isn't it? That second leg is just is just so extraordinary. Yeah, winning the Champions League clearly uh, has to go down as his greatest achievement. The Premier League as well, uh, ending that sort of long thirty year wait for Liverpool. During the COVID season, mate, me meant it didn't have the same impact. You can imagine the city would have been much crazier had it not been for COVID. And, you know, you can only imagine the scenes if they win it this season, of course. They've got a good chance of winning it. I think there's a lot of things wider that Klopp did that, that kind of really changed Liverpool, the club, and also maybe you could argue the Premier League in, in a sense. I mean, he brought in Bayern Munich's head of nutrition, I, I believe, and sort of completely revolutionised the, the nutrition side of the club. He, I think, I mean, Andy, you'll, you'll confirm this, but as far as I'm aware, in terms of youth development, he he changed the academy pay structure or the club changed their academy pay structure to sort of cap the the amounts that uh, youth players could 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 um could earn and and that allowed the sort of youth development side to really thrive. Um, you know, you only had to look at the game yesterday, Connor Bradley and uh, McConnell playing, and 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 he's obviously brought through the likes of Trent, Curtis Jones. There's so many players who have progressed um, through Liverpool's academy into the first team under under Klopp and. 
having an eye on 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 the youth team and 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 the youth development side, I think, is a really important factor. Um, hiring things like a throwing coach, you know, that at the time I know it was sort of five six years ago now, but the, that at the, at the time was you know really considered revolutionary, wasn't it? At the point, there was a point where Liverpool having a throw in was almost like having a corner, or you know, you were worried when Liverpool got a throw in because they was they became so good at that that side of the game under Klopp. So there's so many different avenues that he he's kind of inc- including that heavy metal football that he brought in from Dortmund. There's so many different um, avenues of change that he brought about to Liverpool. And I think it's like Andy said there, it's just it's also that that father figure type of role that he's had in the city and at the club. He's kind of a natural born leader. And, you know, listening to his press conference, he mentioned something that struck me about energy. He said his leadership style, I think, is based on energy, emotion and relationships. And that basically without that, he can't if he can't be all in. Um, then he can't really do it and manage in the way that he wants to manage. And, you know, it's quite a frank admission, but it was a really good insight into his leadership style, which I, I found um, interesting. I think he's the sort of man who has a, he'll have a job, you know, coaching managers or co- doing leadership training, whatever he wants. He's going to be really interesting to get insights from. I can imagine reading a, a leadership book on him at some point in the future. Um, so there's so many different elements to, to Klopp and, and what, how he's affected Liverpool that I think, um, not only just the trophies and the style of football he's brought in, but there's just there's all that wider thing. I mean, ju- just quickly, like I, I actually flew back to Liverpool on on Friday uh, from from Barcelona, and the um, the guy at the border control to my friend, he, he said to him, instead of saying, "Can I have your passport?" First thing he said to him was, "Have you heard about Klopp?" And he said he'd been crying. <laughs> he said he'd been crying all afternoon since he heard the news. So, you know, when the border control isn't guy isn't giving a, a Mexican guy some grief about his passport, he's more interested in. Talking about Klopp, that that kind of sums it all up, really. So, yeah, it's um, I think the city's quite sad, and and clearly, um, it's probably a sad day for the Premier League as well. His ability, John, to to he's great with great players, but when you think about, I don't know, the importance of like Divock Origi in the history of of what Klopp has achieved, like he's got an ability to manage every kind of player within a squad. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I think you maybe look at go back to Dortmund days and look at some of the players that came out of that club, looked so good at Dortmund and never really made it at the, the next club that they moved to. And then you look at Liverpool's recruitment. When he came into the club, uh, Andy will remember this all too well, the uh, the old transfer committee uh, and all the rows about that between the fans. and all, It was one of those big topics of debate. And Klopp came in. Something similar, I think, operates at that point. But what Klopp has is the ability to turn talent that arrives in his team and make use of it. And there aren't many Liverpool players that have come in and have been complete flops in his time. And let's compare that to the great rivals down the road, Manchester United. That's one of the big accusations made again in, in, in the, their failings in the last 10 years. And yeah, he, he's such an energising figure. Yeah, as Andy said, I've, I've been at a couple of the games where he's uh, lost, you know, down at Bournemouth, uh, or where he's asked the wrong question. I think what Andy said... He always likes to be the first question. He gets to describe the game himself, doesn't he? You yeah. Know, so it's yeah. like you. First question is you could say you could say anything, and he will just say, "Well, we started well, we played this or whatever." But I remember uh, someone asking a question about Daniel Surridge. First question, and him absolutely exploding because it wasn't his description of the game. So yeah, I mean the thing is, you know what 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 Klopp brought is natural charisma and. When Liverpool turned to him as manager back in 2015, they got themselves a front man. If you play in this heavy metal thing, they got themselves a front man. They got a guy 
that means that the American owners can sit in the background. They can take some of the credit for, for his success. Uh, but, you know, in this world, this, this new football world, isn't it, of like of sporting directors and all these technical consultants and all these types of things, uh, Klopp showed, actually, that the power of the manager is still as strong as ever. But also, when you look at the way he steps away from the game, uh, you'd look at how being that set, being that front man, being that centre of a club can really take it out of someone. This season, we've talked about on the pod about how he's looked so agitated at times. He's looked, There's a certain greying out of the old Jurgen Klopp that I've seen. But then you look at his contemporaries and maybe a little bit older or... You look at Pep Guardiola, look at Jose Mourinho, yeah? These are good-looking men, right? These are good-looking men, but they look older than they actually are, I think. You know, the, 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 the game has taken an awful lot out of them. It's a bit like a pod. I mean, that happens for, for pod regulars, doesn't it? They, uh... well, it's, they, <laughs> this, yeah, this, what, is it six years now I've been on this thing? I mean, it's taken years off me. But it, but it's, it's... You look like Manuel Pellegrini now, John. Yeah. <laughs> on, I'd just like to state for the record, I do not have a single grey hair. I've got yeah. many. I didn't have them when I started. But, you know, um, but yeah, exactly. The thing is, it, it is such a hard, hard, like, and the thing is, um, Andy, uh, in a piece he wrote for the paper on Saturday, you know, mentioned the Bill Shankly resignation back in 1974 and the Kenny Dalgleish one. And when you look at you know, the both, all three are very similar. All three of them step away, talking of the weight of managing Liverpool because of all jobs, maybe there are others just as big. The pressures are so great, aren't they? And actually, Andy, that's interesting, isn't it? Would you, were the fans yesterday and have the fans you've spoken to, and in, in, in your personal view, you have Klopp at the same level as Dalglish and Shankly? Oh, yeah, absolutely, 100%. Uh, in terms of what he means to the place as well and his connection with the city. Uh, not just It's not just about trophies, it's about the connection and the feel of the place. So, yeah, absolutely up there. But one thing I would say as well about him feeling tired or perhaps or running out of energy is, Klopp feels responsible for absolutely everything that happens at Liverpool, from the first team to the staff to the canteen staff to the people on the gates. He feels a huge weight of responsibility for everything they do. And I know this this might not be the most exciting conspiracy theory for, for why he announced his departure when he did, but one of the reasons was because, like Jonathan mentioned, the new, uh, nutritionist and the, the backroom staff, he wants to give his backroom staff, who will probably have to leave the club because of his decision, and he feels a weight of that, he wants to give them time to plan their next step uh, this summer. You know, if, if they've got kids, they're going to have to move schools. You know, If they came with them from Germany, they're going to have to start looking for, for work and clubs back in Germany or, or elsewhere. So he wanted to give them all you know, a good few months to start that process as well because he feels such responsibility to to the entire club that he he has built. Xabi Alonso then, Jonathan? I mean, it seems so destined, doesn't it? And, and I don't know. It, it just seems like he everything is is just geared towards Alonso. I'm obviously hoping that Ange Postacoglu doesn't find out that Klopp's leaving. That's that's sort of my main, my, my main fear. But do you think Alonso would be a good idea? Or is it too early to say? I think he's, he's going to be the favourite, isn't he? Along with probably uh, Deserby at Brighton, they seem to be the front runners. Um, it struck me when it was announced that um, they also announced that Pep Blinders will be leaving. I thought that there was maybe a succession plan potentially. I think it's been discussed in the past 
um, that the assistant manager would maybe come in and eventually replace Klopp. He's he's very well regarded at Liverpool, I think. Andy, obviously, you'll, you'll, you'll know more than me. Um, and and I, I remember reading once that there was some sort of idea that he, he may be in a position to, to take over, um, really involved in the coaching side of things and, and sort of um, maybe a protege of Klopp. So I was surprised to see him leaving. But yeah, Alonso's done fantastically well um, uh, at, at Leverkusen. It's still fairly early in his managerial career, so things could still go wrong. I mean, they're called Bayer Neverkusen for a reason as a nickname because they, they never win the league. And obviously they're doing so well at the moment, but you still aren't really 100% convinced uh, that they'll win the Bundesliga just given the way that Bayern always seems to find a way. Um, and if he was to win the Bundesliga, of course, that would be a massive achievement that maybe then you would say, yeah, he can withstand the pressure of you know, even a, a Bundesliga title race against a team like Bayern. Um, but it's too early to know that really at the moment, isn't it? And a club as well run as Liverpool, I, I get the sense that they've already um, sort of maybe chosen the, who will succeed him. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if it was announced fairly soon. So I don't know if, you know, given Alonso's situation at, at Leverkusen, if he would have been open to those conversations right now. Um, I do think Deserbi has a really good chance as well. Just the style of football. I always get a sense with Deserbi that he's and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here but I always get the sense in his press conferences that he's maybe there for the taking just in the way he sometimes comments about Brighton as like a we're a small club or we're a project or you know we have to play young players he he, he says a lot of things like that in in press conferences where it's like come and get me plea type vibe he hasn't gone as far <laughs> he hasn't gone as far as saying we're a this is a stepping stone I'm waiting for him to say that and then we'll then we'll, then we'll know for sure uh, quickly Andy before you go um, you're at the game against Norwich. We'd mentioned the youngsters. He is leaving a squad in sort of great shape and better shape than probably anyone thought at the start of the season. And he could go out on this like ridiculous high, right? Could win four trophies. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think the one that would uh, please him most uh, or would be the main target would be winning the league in front of fans. I think that would be, that. that's what he wants. I mean, I know his record in getting to European finals is fantastic. So you you said and Liverpool are clearly favourites for the Europa League anyway. But I think to to win another Premier League in front of a full house and celebrate it properly will be as uh, is the driving ambition. I think for the next four months as well. I think it, I think that's the one. Thanks for coming on, Andy. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Andy Hunter, there, uh, Merseyside correspondent, uh, and we'll be back in a second with Maidstone's great win over Ipswich. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Tom, a Maidstone fan, writes, if I was buzzing after the Stevenage game, I'm absolutely on one now. Utter delirium among the Maidstone fans. And I don't think George Ellicobi will ever have to buy a drink again. A word also for Ipswich, who charged tenner for adults and five quid for children for a game that for Maidstone at least could have sold out twice over. And for their fans, a large proportion of whom stayed behind to applaud George and his men off the pitch. When the draw was made, there was mild disappointment. We only drew Ipswich. But I wonder if playing in a historic old ground with a great atmosphere was actually better than playing a dictator's PR project in a soulless corporate bowl. I certainly wouldn't have swapped today for anything. What an absolutely brilliant day for them, Baz. Fantastic. It's everything you want from a cop upset. I mean, Maidstone could very easily have been three or four nil down inside 20 minutes. I don't think it's taking away from their achievement to say that they rode their luck. Their goalkeeper had the game of his life. Uh, he was superb. 
they ran, they ran, and they ran. And they didn't stop running. They they really worked so hard. They had two shots on goal, scored both of them. Uh, the first was a sensational finish from Lamar Reynolds. An absolutely brilliant yeah. goal. Ipswich equalised, and then maybe you think, oh, that's it then. They might get a replay, but then they go and score again. The second goal probably should have been disallowed. I mean, it definitely should have been disallowed for a foul in the build-up, a tug on the shirt. Uh, George Fowler on, on Sarmiento, who scored the Ipswich goal. And if there had been VAR, it would have been disallowed. But we didn't have VAR, so it wasn't. So great you know, and hard looking. I don't actually think Ipswich did a huge amount wrong. They just couldn't score. And... They played quite well. They had 38 shots. And then you look at the, yeah. the Maidstone team. They've, they've a Bivesh Garung, a player of Nepalese extraction, who's the son of a Gurkha. Uh, Luca Govelin in goal, a, a former Brazil under 20. Gavin Hoyt, who's who's played on the same pitch as Leo Messi while representing um, Trinidad and Tobago. George Galicobi, we all know, used to play for Wolves. And apparently half of Cameroon and half of Nepal were watching this game, tuning in with interest. So, yeah, just a wonderful story. And, <laughs> you know, you were obliged to say that, you know, those who say the magic of the cup does no longer exist, it does. It very much did at Portman Road on, on Saturday. Um, Stephen says, any chance we can just have an hour special on George Ella Kobe? He, he John, is... He's sort of one of the standout stars of this season, isn't he? He is, yeah. I was just listening back to the post-match interview with him. To say he's a bubbly character really is underselling it, isn't it? Although, having said that, let's go back to the cynicism of the journalist, shall we? Uh, a, a colleague of mine, not from The Guardian, I should say, uh, told me that he spoke really, really well, uh, Elikobi. The problem was it's for 30 minutes and having to transcribe that <laughs> Is a, is a right pain in the ass <laughs> because th- th- this is what happens. You see, you, you just give me fifty words of gold and Get then go bullet points. Just, just give me fifty words of gold and then go, and then we can all go home. And Ella Kobe just went for it. Uh, and you, well, why not? But yes, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. But and and, and they'll, they'll, there's more to come. There's more to come. I, I remember there was one years ago. Remember the, the Cowley brothers? They're still floating around, aren't they? That low reaches. I remember sitting through forty five minutes of the Cowley brothers, thinking, "Yeah, well done, lads." But uh, you know, uh, can we go home now? I I remember being at a Crystal Palace game once. Uh, pretty tight deadline on a Saturday afternoon, and Ian Holloway went off on one. Yeah, and, like, and oh, it no. got to the stage where <laughs> people were just getting up and, and walking off to the corner so they could finish the match. And Holloway is just holding court for about 40 minutes. It's like, shut up, Ian. Um, Jonathan, we've, we've, we've talked about Maidstone's story before, but it, I mean, it's worth repeating. This is it's extraordinary what they're achieving, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, um, without bragging, I'm, I think I'm uniquely positioned to comment on a lot of these players, having watched a lot of them in their early careers. Yes. Um, and so... I'm going to lap and this up. And brag away. I mean, listen, no one else is good bragging about <laughs> Maidstone knowledge. This, is a, this isn't a humble brag. This is exactly what bragging should be. I've waited six years for this. I'm going to absolutely lap it up. Um, <laughs> okay, off you go. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I've, I've watched Lamar Reynolds at Brentwood Town about six years ago. Uh, came come through as a good example. Um, and I, th- I think the point is a lot of these players, 
like what is so magical about non-league is like a lot of the players, the journeys they go through to get to this level and the persistence that they have to sort of continue hoping to achieve something like this one day in, in their lives, I suppose. Um, Reynolds is a great example. Like I say, he, he started at Brentwood Town. He got a move to Newport County, I think, then didn't quite work out. He sort of moved around non-league for a long time, played at Braintree and eventually got his move to Maidstone in the summer. And then he, he takes the goal like that against um, against Ipswich Town at Portman Road. You'd never think someone who's you know been at semi-pro for a lot of his li- uh, life would would take the goal under pressure like that in such a high-pressure situation, just dinking the keeper with his weaker foot. It was an incredible finish. You know, Manny Duku, for example, up front, he was playing in Gibraltar two weeks ago. Uh, I think got released or, or left the club, basically playing for a team called, I think, Manchester 62. Um, and next thing you know, he's sort of starring in an incredible FA Cup uh, adventure. There's so many um, I could mention, I know personally as well, some uh, some of the players. So obviously... Please um, do, please do. No, I won't go into too much detail, but yeah, I know some of the players personally. So from that point of view, just knowing what they've been through in their careers um, and things they've had to overcome, to have a day like this is is really remarkable. And I know that, yeah, the cup does get a bit downtrodden on and I know there's a lot of like magic of the cup cliches and things like that, but it is genuinely the only real opportunity for a lot of players to sort of have the limelight, like the national limelight or even global um, to a certain extent that, that, a lot of players search for for their whole careers, if you know what I mean. A lot of players work really hard to get to this to this stage. It would have been nice when the draw came out if they maybe got Wolves for, for the Elokobi angle. I think there yeah. was like four teams left in the hat, wasn't there? And there was Man City as well uh, somewhere along the line. But So I think the Maidstone fans were probably a little bit disappointed with the draw that came out. Um, Man City or Wolves for Elokobi and then they ended up with sort of Coventry or Sheffield Wednesday. But... They'll probably go there and, and, and fancy themselves uh, to, to get something from the game, as, as crazy as it sounds. And imagine if they were to get there. I mean, I think it's the first non-league team to, to reach the last 16 since, I think, the 70s, but I'm not entirely Blyde sure. Blyde Spartans, uh, yeah. they're the lowest-ranked team since Blyde Spartans to make the fifth round in 78, I believe. Yeah, that's it. Was it Telford United got to fifth round in 85 or something like that? Oh. Sounds familiar. This is, this is, this is sort of not in my knowledge. Not, I think it's Blythe Spartans. I, I, think it. I, think, I think Barry's right. Okay, Blythe Spartans. Jonathan, when you talk to like, players like this, and, you know, it is worth remembering, you know, these are seriously good footballers still, right? But it, it genuinely is their motivation, I might get one day out like this, or are they, because, you know, I guess there comes a time as a non-league footballer where you go, I'm probably not going to make it into the league. But presumably most of the time they are aspiring and they're still aspiring to just get as high as they can. Yeah, I think a lot of the time um, you've either got players who sort of come up completely through non-league and, and have been doing this the whole the whole career, or you get players who maybe got released from big clubs. I mean, uh, there's players in that team, for example, released from Crystal Palace. There's players released from sort of Arsenal's and and, and 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 clubs like that. And there's that kind of defiant streak where it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna prove that I was good enough to make it. I mean, you know, Jacob Berkeley, Edgepong in midfield. He, someone I know, and um, he played in the same team as Aaron Wembasaka, and they were they were teammates at Palace. Uh, and I suppose for certain players, there's that that feeling that whether right or wrong, they were released maybe harshly, and and they never had the opportunities that they wanted. And, and and there's that kind of feeling like I'm going to make it back one day. For some players, like you say, Max, there's that feeling of, well, I'll just play and see what happens. But I think a lot of players that I know and, and speak to, there's always that dream that they'll make it eventually and, and, and a day like this will come. And and so I feel like for a lot of the players, there'll be that, that feeling of, yeah, you know, I, I am good enough to make it at, 
a certain level and I can show that I'm good enough. And I think on days like this, it's that feeling of vindication of like, well, I'm not that bad, if you know what I mean. And sometimes, you know, the journey of football is, is so unpredictable um, that that you, you you can get swallowed up and you don't know where you're going to end up. And it, and it is a massive journey. But I suppose days like that kind of just reinvigorate and, and, and give the feeling that, you know, you're not that far away. And when you look at the game, I know they were sort of battered at times. I mean, the goalkeeper has, a, has an interesting backstory himself. And, you know, you'd have to sort of... Um, say that they did get away with it a little bit but a lot a lot of the players aren't that bad and I don't think that there's a massive I mean it is I know there's 100 places between them 98 places between Ipswich and Maidstone in the, in the league structure but at times there's not a huge like massive gap between the standard of the players it's maybe coaching or persistence or um, hunger things like that that that, that, that determine um, the success of a player maybe so there is the ability for these players to pull off these kind of games where they're just they're on it and they can take on a championship team or take on a you know a League One team. So I don't think the gap's massively as big as it used to be. Part of the reason for that is non-league these days, it's it's very rare that you see a player who's sort of um you know eating pies before the game starts and and is clearly like ten pounds you know ten pounds overweight or whatever. Like, like non-league, like I think it speaks to the professionalization of like young people as well. They they don't really drink as much as maybe before. There's more there's more of like a gym culture that, than say twenty years ago, thirty years ago maybe. You know, the going to the gym is like cool now, isn't it, for for for, for younger people? And staying fit is like a, a bigger bigger thing now, even than sort of thirty, forty years ago. I would say if you were looking at non-league then, so it's professionalised a bit more. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could talk about it for a long time, so I'll cut it cut it there. But basically, there's a lot of different factors. It's interesting. I was watching Barry's face when you said going to the gym is cool, um, and it sort of sort of gla- slight, slightly slightly glazed over. I think you're absolutely right. I think that is really interesting, and also I think. That, Sorry, what, what happened idea. to my face? I remained just... completely expressionless throughout. <laughs> I mean, I didn't react in any way. Okay, I'll take it back. You know, it's interesting that I wonder with non-league, you know, we just presume football is a sort of total meritocracy. You know, the absolute best will get there and, the, you know, the second best. And maybe there is, you know, there will be so many lucky breaks along the way that might change the whole sort of perspective of where you end up as a footballer but well done I think non-league players they're all excellent footballers but they just don't do it as consistently as people who are playing at higher level or you know Premier League players I mean that finish from Lamar Reynolds was absolutely outstanding and if if a Premier League player did it we'd still be saying oh what a goal what a finish but you know I'm guessing he, he probably doesn't do that Week in, week out. Totally agree. I think the consistency is a big part of it. Anyway, well done to Maidstone uh, and uh, a fantastic day for them. Uh, to Newport, who scared Manchester United. They lost 4-2 in the end, but they they got it to 2-2, didn't they? They That Will Evans goal in the 47th minute. You were there, John. What was that moment like? Well, it wasn't unexpected. Um, <laughs> it's funny, you know, uh, United go 2-0 up, playing well. And I was near the United fans in the temporary stand and they weren't larging it or lording it over Newport County because they've seen this team before. And it was pretty much a full-strength team, apart from the goalkeeper, Mayinde, uh, because, you know, Kobe Mainu playing with uh, Casemiro is what I think Ten Hag envisaged in pre-season until Mainu got injured. But, I mean, as I wrote in the piece... Um, as we went in the paper today, United remained just a, a collection of individuals, whereas Newport... What Newport did, actually, is they fell for the 
the move that United try and score from every time, which is overload down one side, ball played across, someone shoots in from the cutback, yeah? And United did that twice. And then they kept trying to do it. And eventually Newport thought, do you know what they're doing? They're doing this cutback thing and started cutting out the moves. So then the Man United uh, forward line, all blonde, by the way, fell out with each other and they'll start, you know, digging each other out. And uh, this Casemiro and Maynou uh, dream team gets out-muscled in midfield by Newport County. And, you know, they scored a, a goal with, you know, it took a deflection or whatever. Suddenly... You're there thinking this is an FA Cup shock of all shocks, though it isn't really a shock that this Manchester United team could go through this. Um, and yeah, they got away with it in the end. But the celebrations from Anthony and Rasmus Hoyland were not. Yeah, really Anthony bef- felt like it was a World Cup semi-final. Goal, yeah, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> not, not really befitting of you know just slotting away Newport and getting in a coach and going out back to Manchester. I saw Sidney Brailsford there actually. I walked past him. There are many more gains than marginal to be made for Manchester United. Uh, let's credit Newport, though. They played really, really well. Uh, manager Graham Coughlin, an Irishman, great quotes after, you know, were you dreaming you were going to do it? He just said, yeah, of course I was. And also spoke very well about Premier League clubs wanting to get rid of replays. And uh, he spoke actually to something Jonathan was talking about, how players at that level, obviously that's League Two, this is their chance to play in those. In the FA Cup grants them the chance, and the Premier League clubs want to take that away. And he said, "You've got big squads, you've got big money. Have the replays, please. It's what our club needs." So, yeah, enjoyed going there. Rodney Parade, great fun. Uh, well done, Newport County, Manchester United. Continue to be well. You know what word I'm going to use. Mm. Uh, yeah, those watching on the BBC, there was some good lower league appreciative groaning from Danny Murphy, so slightly out of the Gary Neville playbook. Pete, amongst <laughs> others, saying, seeing as Anthony appears to have found his level, which League Two side should sign him in the summer? <laughs> um, Barry, I, I wanted to ask you about Marcus Rashford, Barry. Um, reported ill for training on Friday, hours after apparently being pictured at a nightclub in Belfast. Um, he apparently attended Thompson's Garage nightclub. Uh, on Thursday before flying home by private jet on Friday. He went to Northern Ireland to visit his former teammate, Roshan Williams, who recently signed for Larn FC. Uh, Ten Hag said Rashford had stayed at Carrington to train as he recovers. Um, He reported ill and the rest is an internal matter. Uh, Because normally we are very much, look, players should be able to go and live their lives. Taking a private jet to go to a nightclub in Belfast seems does seem a stretch, doesn't it? When you're not when you're not really at the top of your game. I don't know how good this nightclub is, I confess. Yeah, I mean my club and days are long, long behind me. Um and I I just wonder like, did he stop off at a chippy en route to the private the airstrip to, to to get like a snack box or a, a couple of big dirty burgers? It's not his first indiscretion of that kind this season. I would be of a mind, but by all means, go disco dancing if you want to. But you you got to turn up for work in the morning, uh, no matter what your walk of life or what what your profession. And it's if you're an underperforming player in an underperforming team, uh, it's it's not a good look, and it's smacks your own professionalism. And he's not a kid anymore, but I don't want to be that guy who's sanctimoniously tutting someone for you know, staying out too late or drinking too much. I don't know if Marcus Rashford is a drinker or not. Uh, 
maybe he he left the nightclub and went to the gym to pump some iron like 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 the kids are doing these days <laughs> but um uh i have heard that actually you know young people they don't drink they just they just go and take steroids and pump iron which is interesting you know whatever floats your boat but um yeah it's not a good look is it marcus and <laughs> do, do, do they all take steroids though? i don't some know of them, some of them just might you know go to the gym i have seen it this sort of late night gym thing but uh, are steroids necessary for that or is that i, don't, I don't know it's not really my scene john <laughs> mine neither honest. barry you may know you may have noticed this, but, uh... whereas i'm i'm juiced up to my eyeballs uh... <laughs> <laughs> on the on the roids, um, Thompson's Garage is a bona fide Belfast clubbing institution operating seven nights a week, featuring some of the best DJs and musicians from around the world. As Belfast's longest running city centre nightclub with over twenty nine years in the game, the club has played host to some of the biggest artists in the industry, including here we go, go MK, Nina Kravis, Eats Everything, Zane Lowe. Okay, I've heard of him. Alan yeah. Pat Fitzpatrick, Red Axes, Errol Alkin, Jared Janssen, and many more. If you said they were the, uh, you know, their current centre midfield for Plymouth, well, I'd have said fair enough. And, and I know uh, people will know this, but Errol Alkin uh, is a is a producer, produced Duran Duran's last album, I believe, but he is also the cousin of the guy who played Roland off Grange Hill. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently Marcus went out two nights in a row, and I did. Rem- I heard the place he was in on the Wednesday night, I think it was, and I did remember it. I can't; it's gone out of my head now, but I did remember it from my days uh, compiling the the fortnightly gig guide for Hot Press magazine in Dublin. That's a long time ago. <laughs> so these these nightclubs in in Belfast, you have to take your hat off to them for the longevity, if nothing else. If I could describe Ten Hag's expression uh, when he was asked three or four questions about that, he's, he is really not very happy with Marcus Rashford. And I would expect not to see Rashford in the team for quite a while because uh, he's obviously not happy with him and deservedly so if that's what's happened. I thought of being in Fez Club in Cambridge when I was 21, just dance, you know, just standing in the dance floor and then seeing an England international football. And go, that's really... Well, I don't know what you're doing here, but anyway, happy hour closes in 10 minutes. So let's get 30 Long Island iced teas and line them all up at the table and enjoy them. I once saw Chris Waddle and David Hurst in a oh, in, in Sheffield. That was good. Me and a pal took on um, Lee Sharp and Nicky Bott in a game of doubles playing pool in, in nice. a nightclub in Dublin called Lily's Bordello. We wanted to have a bet... Uh, so, or Lee, Lee Sharp said, you know, do you want to have, have money on this? So we suggested, well, we, we'll each put up a week of our wages against a week of year <laughs> wages. And Lee, Lee didn't go for that. Oh, really? I was just waiting for Jonathan to come in to tell him all the Maidstone players. Any non-league <laughs> legends that with... you've... Uh... <laughs> I just want to know who won, who won, the, who won, that, who won the match, Barry. Uh, myself and my mate Fiekra did, uh, yes. Oh, many congratulations. Thank you. Um, And that'll do for part two. Part three, uh, we'll begin with that crowd trouble at the Hawthorns. (laughs) 
Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, look, the first black country derby with fans for 12 years between West Brom and Wolves. Wolves won 2-0. Soon after their second goal in the 80th minute, fighting erupted in the Holford's Lane stand. The players were sent down the tunnel. The game was suspended for more than 35 minutes. It was in an area where a lot of the players' families tend to sit. And I think there was Wolves fans or a couple of Wolves fans in that area who celebrated that goal. Um, West Brom player Carl Bartley was seen um, getting his family from the stands. There were five arrests during the game, plus one beforehand. At least one fan was taken away on a stretcher. Another with blood pouring from his head was escorted away with his arms held behind his back. A ball boy was hit on the head by a plastic bottle. West Brom have pledged to ban for life any fan culpable in the fighting. Uh, the club will work with West Midlands Police and the FA to fully investigate the incidents which resulted in suspension of the game. Any individual involved in the disorder will be subject to a club ban in addition to potential criminal investigation. I guess, John, what is interesting is it's so rare seeing this now mm. that it shocks you compared to sort of what football was like when I was growing up. I mean, it wasn't often that games were suspended for this long, but there was an air of this all so all the time. And there yes. isn't now, which I guess is a positive, but it's pretty grim. Oh, yeah, it's grim. And uh, we've talked about this before, uh, and I, I always... You're fighting about football. Come on. It is only a game and we all take it seriously. But are you really going to have to go home to your wife and explain that, uh, yeah, I'm going to be doing a two stretch for hitting someone because they wear a shirt, looks like a Tesco bag because I'm a Wolves fan. You know, that's that's the type of mentality that's involved there. Uh, I mean, you know, there, there were other incidents this weekend at Port Vale. You had uh, that lunatic gets on the pitch, runs after the referee, slowed down. I noticed when he came towards the stewards, referee showed a clean pair of heels as he ran down the... So with that one, that maybe speaks to a bit of the uh, targeting of referees you get in the media, I suppose, with people thinking they can go for referees. But the, the West Brom Wolves thing seemed like a... Yeah, an old style rumble between fans all getting a bit excited. When those games aren't played so often, then the tension boils up and it becomes, you know, be, being a, a someone that fights at a football match is all about a macho identity. It's about, uh, you know, showing you're one of the lads and all that type of thing. Beyond that sort of, you know, Danny Dyer's Football Factory stuff, uh, which also is one of the most hilarious programmes of all times, it is. It's funny, but it's a bit sad. Uh, and attacking players' families. Well, come on. Yeah, I, I wonder, Barry. I, and I've thought about this a lot. Like, one of the things that we love about football is the tribalism, right? When you compare it to other sports, something that makes it great is that people are so hugely passionate. And like, obviously, most of us know where the line is, right? And I'm with John, right? It's just, it's just a game, right? It's just a game. But like, we also like really love, oh, Galatasaray away, welcome to hell. You know, yeah, these yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. things, like this, this extreme, oh, look at these ultras, aren't this is sort of mad, football has this thing. And like, can you celebrate tribalism without expecting it at times to just go over that line? Because if it, obviously, if you move the line back, Further, then it becomes, you know, like, I don't know, if I think about Australian rules football, they all, everyone, sit, as far as I know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, everyone just sits together and has a nice time. And that's nice, but it isn't what we go to football for. Yeah, I mean, in Ireland, generally, 
say at a hurling match or a Gaelic football match, there's no segregation of fans. And at inter-county level, everyone generally tends to behave themselves. But when you go down sort of to, towards club level, the things can often boil over and there's fights, referees get attacked and on one famous occasion bundled into the boot of a car and driven up a mountain. <laughs> and it's funny. You you hear the stories, it's funny. But it's not funny for the people it's happening to or the people who get arrested or assaulted and whatnot. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say that looking at a man... A, ma- a boiler, the West Brom mascot, you know, dressed as a boiler, <laughs> appealing for calm yesterday. That's funny. It is, you know, th- there's no way. Of... <laughs> but uh, seeing someone being led away with blood pouring out of a, a wound in their head is is not particularly funny. Um, but yeah, yeah, things will occasionally boil over. But our, our mate Justin Moorehouse has a good routine about tribalism in football that the football fans they're all the same and they're all interested in the same thing but the only difference between you know they're separated by 20 miles or 10 miles or 30 miles and that that's the only difference between them and and they get it wouldn't be in my nature to get wound up at a game you know I, I if my team is doing badly I sit and I seize I don't get particularly animated and I you know haven't swung a punch and I think since I was a kid but um, as you say it's it's happened so rarely that we are quite shocked when it does boil over and I suppose that is a good thing um, uh, let's go through a few of the other games um, Man City beat Tottenham Jonathan on, on Friday night it was billed as the tie of the round it couldn't be more exciting look at these two teams who just go at each other and it was absolute it was absolutely terrible wasn't it and like Tottenham didn't show up at all <laughs> The goal, which I actually thought was totally fine, but there was some controversy around the goal. Do you do you think Vicario had a case there at all? Uh, not really, to be honest. I think it was. I suppose in the in in the sort of VAR age where everything's everything's a bit murky, isn't it? Every goal is questionable, and in that in that sort of sense, maybe. But uh, I I kind of just want to brush over VAR, and no, so I'm going to say no, no. No, that's fine. I wondered if he could have just had a helping hand from a teammate. Like, couldn't you stick a, you know, you've got, is it Ruben Diaz, right, on on you? Just get Romero I mean, to stand. I mean, they could have like, defended it better. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's yeah. a different point. But I, I don't think it was, like, hugely controversial. But Ruben Diaz had been targeting him all game. So he could have, if he had a problem with it, raised it with the referee, got a teammate to help him. But I don't think Ruben Diaz did anything wrong. And he just needed to be be stronger like he got a good two hands to the ball so just flap it elsewhere yeah I mean I I think my high point of the game was um, Pep Guardiola getting booked for sarcastically applauding and then trying to sort of carry off the fact that he he was pretending to applaud his team by like continuing to applaud (laughs) really funny anyway City are through Luton are through they'll be Everton getting to the fifth round the FA Cup for only the second time in 11, 11 years Trash account says, cliche alert probably, but Luton continue to blow me away. They're so gutsy, never give up. I can't remember wanting a team to stay up in the Premier League, have a great run in the Cup so much as them. Amazing team and spirit. And it's true, John, isn't it? Like, brilliant yeah. result for them. Yeah, I've seen a lot of Luton and you never fail to be taken by, yeah, that the energy that they're putting in uh, and the spirit that Rob Edwards has instilled in them. 
that's a bad result for Everton, you know. I mean, they need cup revenue. They need these things. And to get to lose in the last minute, it's just Everton, isn't it? Because, you know, with their points deduction and whatever else is coming up ahead from the, the latest Premier League thing, it's a fairly bleak season ahead for Everton. But then again, they've got a new stadium to look forward to. To uh, As a Evertonian supporting friend of mine said to me yesterday to play Barnsley in. Yeah. With all due respect, of course. Absolutely. I have much, massive respect for Barnsley, yeah. Any other results you want to pick out, Baz? Um... There was there was quite a few really good goals in various ties, and we haven't time to touch on them all. But one thing that slightly got on my wick was uh, Sheffield United got gobbed 5-2 by Brighton. And after the game, Chris Wilder had a big moan at the ref. And he, I thought he was really poor. They've put him on our, on for our game again to see if he's all right for the Premier League. The ref was Sonny Singil. Um, and I just thought that was completely unnecessary criticism. I don't think he did anything wrong. I'm not sure what Wilder's problem was. He didn't highlight any particular issues he had with the referee. And, you know, uh, Sheffield United are, are currently in the process of proving that um, they're not all right for the Premier League. So, you know, why not test referees on them? But uh, I don't think that's helpful at all. And it it leads to this culture of ref bashing. You know, Sheffield United are pretty crap. Chris Wilder has done very little to improve them since he arrived. And for him to come out of a 5-2 defeat at home and have a go at the ref, who, as I say, didn't do anything wrong that I noticed. Uh, I just thought it was poor, poorer from Chris. I, I expect better. Uh, I, I was going to say, um, Jaden Anthony scored a fine goal for, oh, brilliant for Leeds, goal. didn't he? And, um, and he celebrated uh, uh, with tribute to his mum, who, who died quite recently. And then, this, this is so bad, isn't it? Then you get that the, the referee has to book him for any given a yellow card. And you just think, you know, common sense refereeing. The referees should be given the opportunity yeah. to use their discretion. Some sense of empathy, yeah, rather than this directive. Because, I mean, obviously he, was, he didn't want to do it, or, but it's it looked bad. It looked bad. Mm-hmm. You know, goal, goal scorer and book him. Oh. But yeah, it was it was a great moment, great goal. Wonder, absolutely wonderful goal. Uh, Eunice Atkins for Leicester was brilliant as well. I mean, oh, yeah. I did like their opener. Mark Albrighton to Jamie Vardy was very 2015. <laughs> old school, <laughs> old the, school. The, the Leicester's Mark, Mark Albrighton, I, I, I wrote the little preview, only 34. There's still, no. there's still, yeah, I mean, he's been around forever. He really yeah. has. Is he still underrated? I, I, <laughs> um, Bournemouth were 5-0 up at half-time and obviously it finished. Normally 5-0 half-time is 6-1 full-time, but they just kept it at 5-0. Uh, so the draw has been done. Blackburn or Wrexham who play tonight, play Newcastle, Chelsea or Villa versus Leeds or Plymouth, Bournemouth, Leicester, Liverpool versus Watford or Southampton, Bristol City or Forest take on Manchester United, Wolves v Brighton, Sheffield Wednesday or Coventry against Maidstone, Luton versus 
Manchester City. Um, a bit of any other business. Uh, Matt Gibson says, Dear Max and team, long-time listener, enjoyed your live show in Brighton. Uh, I've never been in contact, but it's very rare to have the opportunity to relay something remotely useful from my degree in linguistics back in the 1990s. I just heard the exchange in the pod about Eric Dyer's Steve McLaren moment and your use, Max, of the Cockney accent whenever in a London cab. I can confirm this is sociolinguistic phenomenon called accommodation. Essentially, people accommodate their speech and communication style, including accent, due to the influence of social factors such as gender, culture, ethnicity, age, occupational status. I'm very aware when I do this myself, my wife is also a very good case study there you go thank you matt uh, mark says if the football weekly pundits not just today's team were all entered into the next season of traitors who would make the best traitor um barry who do you think jonathan liu there we are um uh, a while ago <laughs> devious scheming underhand treacherous to his core i think do you think, do you think wilson would be good wilson might be quite good Mm, maybe, yeah. Oh, no, I go with Johnny Lou. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a while back, uh, we were discussing Aberdeen Angus Steakhouses. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember yeah. why. It may have been because of Salt Bay. I'm not sure. I think I said, I don't know anyone who's ever eaten in one, but they always appear to be full. Yes, yes that's right. That's yes. right. Yeah, that's right. Well, anyway... They have slid into my DMs, Barry. Hi, Max. Hope you're well, says at Angus Steakhouse. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, so our ears have been burning from a recent episode of your Football Weekly podcast. We would love to get you into one of our restaurants to try the world's best steak. It's no joke. We teamed up with Australian steak producers Jack's Creek to curate the Jack's Creek Black Angus Steak menu. We'd love to invite yourself, Barry, Will and John that was the uh, lineup to our Leicester Square restaurant to try the new menu on us, of course. Would you be interested? Are we now in the pocket of big steak? Can we accept the free steak, Barry? What do you think? We obviously can't speak on Will Unwin's behalf, but should we meet in Leicester Square for a Jack's Creek Black Angus steak? Well, I'm not sure what the... the well, I, I have a fair idea what the Guardian policy is on accepting I suspect, I suspect we might not be able to accept this, yeah. And uh, I, I, I'm not sure we, we sh it would be ethically correct to to take but, Angus Steakhouses up on their offer. But can if we just walked in there to show that people have walked in there and then walked out, would that prove something? Half an hour, an hour later. Sated. Sated. Smacking lips. Yeah. Just meat <laughs> dripping down our faces. It's a bold claim to say that they have the world's best steak. I'd like to... Yeah, I mean, to be challenged. I have my doubts. Well, maybe we should go and pay for it with our own money. Yeah. Don't be so bloody daft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we welcome all we welcome all listeners. So thank you to Mr. and Mrs. Yeah. Angus for getting in touch. Uh, uh, finally, Aaron says, "Good morning, Max Barry and the gang. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Had a great time at your live show in London last year. I discovered the pod during the dark times of empty football stadiums during the Panny D, which is what he calls the pandemic. That's a very odd way to describe it. I haven't missed an episode since. My friend Phil is also a huge fan. I got married last year and imagine my surprise when I listened to the pod the Monday after my wedding and did not hear one of Barry's classic wedding well wishes. Phil sadly let me down as he couldn't be bothered to write into the pod on my behalf. To 
show that I am the far better friend than Phil, I'm writing in to ask Barry, could he please wish Phil a happy birthday as it was his birthday at the weekend and he has no plans to get married anytime soon. Lots of love, Aaron. Uh, happy birthday, Phil. I hope you have many, many more of them. There we are. Uh, thanks, and that'll do for today. Thank you, John. Cheers, Max. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, Max. Cheers, Barry. Thanks, mate. Football Weekly is produced by Silas Gray. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett. Premier League Weeks will be back on Wednesday. This is The Guardian.